Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and to having a deeper connection to our own humanity. So this is episode 115, and it is an interview with Tony Riches. He is an amazing historical fiction author. If you've not read his work, I highly recommend it. And you can start out with this book on Charles Brandon, his newest book, but you should definitely go back and read the older books too. So we talked about Charles Brandon, who is somebody who I will admit I had a negative perception of, Um, but we talked a lot and he In his book, he gives a very different perspective of Charles Brandon and really humanizes him, which I think is great. So he has expanded my Charles Brandon horizons. So before we get into that, and before I introduce him, I want to remind you that there's still time to get some amazing Christmas presents over at TudorFair.com, which is my online shop. The Treasures from Best Christmas box, which is a box that's similar to the popular subscription service, um, but it's a more festive version. And it is just a one-off. So there's no commitment required. It's for those of you who might be a little bit commitment phobic. That's okay. This is a a festive version of Treasures from Best. And it's basically like five gifts in one. So it makes a really great Christmas gift. And then we also have tickets on sale for TudorCon. So I would like to invite you to spend three days with me and 120 of your new best friends in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, at a newly restored winery adjacent to the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair from October the 18th to 20th, 2019, where we are going to have three days of amazing fun with feasting and partying, but also a lot of learning. So we're going to have guest speakers similar to what we have with the Tudor Summit. And we're going to have... um about 10 speakers, and we're going to have period music, hands-on demonstrations of things like fiber arts and spinning. Um, It's going to be a really brilliant mix of learning and socializing and making new friends and dressing up and listening to period music. And we're going to end it with a medieval feast and some time in the Renaissance Fair. So check out tutorcon.info, tutorcon, T-U-D-O-R-C-O-N, tutorcon.info, dot I-N-F-O. Tutorcon.info will get you, um, it's a very basic bare bones website right now that I just set up, but it'll get you all the basic information and links to buy your seat 
We have a very limited amount of tickets available and they will sell out. You can still get the early bird price up until the end of the year. So check out tutorcon.info for that. And then we still have the tutor planner. So you can still get a tutor planner in time for Christmas and start off planning with the tutors in 2019. Tutorify your 2019, right? So with that all out of the way, let me introduce you to Tony Riches. Tony Riches was born in Pembrokeshire in West Wales, UK, and he spent part of his childhood in Kenya. He got a BA degree in psychology and an MBA from Cardiff University. He wrote several successful nonfiction books, and then he decided that his real interest was in the history of the 15th and 16th century, and now his focus is on writing historical fiction about the lives of the key figures of medieval history. His Tudor trilogy, which starts with the book Owen and traces Owen, Jasper, and then Henry Tudor, uh, it's become an international bestseller, and he is in regular demand as a guest speaker about the lives of the early Tudors. He was a finalist in the 2017 Amazon Storyteller Awards and is listed 130th in the 2018 Top 200 list of the most influential authors. He's now returned to Pembrokeshire, an area full of inspiration for his writing, where he lives with his wife. In his spare time, he enjoys sailing and sea kayaking. So we're going to start it off by talking about how we got from his early interest or the earlier books, starting with Owen Tudor, going right the way through to Charles Brandon and where he's going to go from here. Thank you so much for for being here. Um, we talked once before for the Tudor Summit about your early books, um, Owen and Jasper and and Henry. And I wonder whether for people who haven't heard that, if we can just go back a little bit, because this new book on Charles Brandon is not, of course, your your first. And I'd like to kind of trace the story of how you went from Owen to right the way through going you know, telling Charles Brandon's story a little bit. Yeah, sure. Well, the thing is, I was born in Pembroke, and that's, of course, where Henry Tudor was born. And I'd already written uh, several books, one of which had been a bestseller in the US. And I decided to write a book about Henry Tudor, because at the time, I couldn't find any books about the whole of Henry Tudor's life that weren't dry, dusty, historical books. textbooks almost and so I decided to start collecting as much information as I could and I spent a couple of years and I ended up with enough for at least three or four books so I had to decide what to leave out when to start his life and everything like that and I knew that there were no books about his grandfather Owen Tudor and Owen's story was fascinating to me Um, he's a Welshman that uh, suddenly found himself alone with a widowed young queen. And so the idea of the Tudor trilogy occurred to me that Henry could be born in the first book, um, come of age in the second book, and become king in the third book. Mm. And uh, I really enjoyed researching and writing those. And you know, I'm pleased to say they've been a great success in the US and the UK and, surprisingly, Australia. Yeah. And, um, the, I say surprisingly, uh, a lot of Australians came from here originally, didn't they? Yes. So uh, it was a, a question of how do you follow that? You know, you can't have a, a fourth book of the trilogy. But in, in the final book, I'd really enjoyed writing the part of Mary Tudor, who was um, Henry VII's youngest daughter, who kind of nursed him in, in his um, last few months. Mm-hmm. And... 
I'd done a lot of research about her. And again, there were no books really exploring her adventures in her life, which was which was intriguing. So I, I wrote Mary Tudor Princess, uh, which is actually my best-selling book this year. In fact, this month it's, it's outsold all of the others put together, mm-hmm. which is really encouraging. And it, I kind of um, called it a sequel to the trilogy. So it's like the secret fourth book of the three-book trilogy. And as I was writing it, I, I became more and more fascinated by the character of Charles Brandon, who I only really knew before from the television series The Tudors. Um, and that was, a lot of that was wrong. It's, it's outrageous. They merged Mary and her sister Margaret into a single <laughs> character. Yeah. I, I think it's unforgivable. I mean, I was enjoying it up to that point. Uh, and, you know, you could forgive uh, the way they portrayed Henry and stuff, but you couldn't forgive the merging in his sisters. <laughs> and so anyway, never mind. Um, it, it came to me that what I could do is I could research Charles Brandon while I was also researching Mary. And then I could write a book which told pretty much the same story from his point of view. Okay. Which is very different, of course, because yeah. um, she wasn't his first wife and she wasn't his last. Right. Uh, and so that's what I've been doing. And uh, that was published just in time for Christmas on the 3rd of this month. And um, I really enjoyed uh, writing that because it's it's got everything you could hope for. You know, it's, he's, he was a champion jouster. Um, he was Henry VIII's best friend. And uh, he... he he went on Henry's behalf, fighting battles against the French on the sea and uh, on the land. And um, he was quite a romantic character as well. Yeah. And what, what amused me, he was always in debt. And even when he died, he was like £4,000 in debt, much to everybody's amazement. How can how can one of the biggest landowners in the country be so hopeless with money, you know? Yeah. So there were lots of intriguing things, and um, I enjoyed writing that. And then what I'm actually working on now, some people know because I've already shared it with some people, is that um, his last wife, um, Catherine, uh, Catherine Brandon, but it would be Catherine Willoughby, if you like. Um, she is just an amazing woman. And um, she not only did she um, live through... Henry VIII's reign, you know, I've got, I've got the book which talks about that she could have been his, his last wife. You know, there was talk that he was going to marry her, but that, of course, she um, carried on through the life, through the reign of his son. And then the, the horror of uh, Queen Mary, <laughs> yeah, and then right through to the crowning of Elizabeth I. So I, what, I, what I realised was it offered me the perfect way of rounding off the story of the early Tudors and leading into the court of Elizabeth I. Mm. So that's what I'm doing now. And I hope to have that published this time next year, because I'm already well into the research. And um, we visited um, Framlingham Castle a little while ago. And there's, um, you know, that's, that was where she grew up that area. Yeah. And of course, it's where Charles lived at um, Westhorpe as well. Yeah. So that, that's quite a... Quite a long answer to a short question. <laughs> no, I like it. And I'll be interested to hear, to, to read your book on her. I've always been interested in, in her. And uh, certain oh, things about her stick out. Like, didn't she have a dog that she named after Stephen Gardner? And That's right. 
Um, and everybody knew about it, which was worse. Yes. So, like, it was, she deliberately would um, call the dog's name in public so that people know the contempt that she had um, Gardner yeah. in. Yeah. And nothing he could do about it. There's, there's no law about naming your dog. <laughs> it's really cheeky, isn't it? I love it. I'm going to get a dog and call it Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I would like that. That would be great. Um, that we should set a new kind of trend for people doing that. That would be, that would be fun. Um, so your title with Charles Brandon is Tudor Knight. I would like for you to talk to me a little bit about what you see a Tudor Knight being, because this was really a period going away from the medieval ideas of, of courtly love and, and all of that and, and, you know, actual real life knights and Agincourt and, and everything and moving into a period where you know, we, we have guns and later on towards the end of, and, and battles at sea. And, um, and it becomes much, you don't have this, knight in shining armor anymore and he kind of straddles this this period i guess and so i was wondering if you could talk to me a little bit about what that means to be a tutor knight that's a really good question because um charles brandon i could put i could make an argument that he was the last of the true true knights Mm -hmm. i mean these days they give knighthoods to pop stars and things like that don't they right but um he was a knight in shining armor because he was the only one, really, that regularly wore gilded armour. So if you look at the cover, he's wearing... The, the armour is steel underneath, but it's gilded with, with gold leaf, ah. which must have been an amazing sight on, in bright sunshine. Can you imagine yeah. what effect that must have created? But you mentioned courtly love as well, and, of course, Henry VIII was fascinated by this whole game of courtly love. And... Um, there's so it's so well documented uh, that he was almost obsessed by it, really. Yeah. And uh, it ended it ended with him because um, neither his his son or, or uh, Mary Tudor, Queen Mary the First, she wasn't really obsessed with courtly love at all. I don't think. Right. But, um, so it was the end of an era, and um, he was a true knight because he had very chivalric values um when you read his letters and when you look at how he conducted himself um he saw himself as a kind of arthurian knight mm-hmm. and of course it was all a, a a charade really because um he was a champion jouster and that that's an amazing skill when you think a great big war horse a jousting horse um, destria charging at full tilt with a heavy lance uh, but it was all for entertainment. It was all a game with with rules to try and keep them safe, which didn't always work. Yeah. And um, he suddenly found himself actually leading a, leading an army of like five thousand men into battle, and realised he didn't have a clue about. He'd never killed anybody, and he he'd never um, raised his sword in anger. He had blunted swords with blunt tips, you know. Yeah, it was all a bit of a. It was an entertainment. The sport wasn't it? And, uh, the really after Brandon's death, um, it was never quite the same again. Uh, I know there was some there's jousting going on these days, but it's a completely different game now. Right. In those days, it was the the kingly um, pastime. Right. 
Um, and it's interesting that y- you talk about, you know, seeing himself as this Arthurian figure and the idea of courtly love too coming into that with, from, from my perspective, he's a bit of a cad sometimes, or that's always <laughs> how I've seen him. Um, oh. And so I wonder, you know, you, you show early on in the book that, that he has feelings for his wife. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's easy it's easy to dismiss him as a bit of a cad uh, because there's a real danger of applying um, present day standards to it. Right. You know? And in fact, um, I don't want to give any way any spoilers to the book. By the way, um, so if I hesitate, it only means that I'm just quickly thinking through whether it would spoil it for readers that aren't familiar with his story. Right. It's quite well documented that after Mary's death, three months later. He married his ward, Catherine Willoughby, who was 14. Right. And, um, and hadn't well, she been actually engaged to his son? Absolutely. That was right. plan E, was that his son, Henry, um, was going to marry this beautiful, wealthy heiress, Catherine Willoughby. And uh, Charles Brandon had gone to a lot of trouble to secure her wardship from the king paying over £2,000 for it, which he didn't have, by the way. He borrowed the money. Right. <laughs> borrowed the money. And when Mary died, if we just look at it for, through modern eyes, you know, um, uh, you know, somebody's wife dies, and three months later, uh, this is like a 48-year-old man marries a 14-year-old girl and immediately gets her pregnant, uh, he'd be in prison, wouldn't he? Yes. So um, that's by modern standards. But if you put yourself back to Charles Brandon's time, um, it made perfect sense in that um, he, she'd already let him know that she wouldn't be unhappy with the arrangement. Mm-hmm. Let's put it like that. And in fact, um, you know, Anne Boleyn's reputed to have um, started a rumour that uh, he was in some kind of relationship with his daughter. And, you know, some historians have said, that she'd actually, whether that happened at all is debatable, but let's imagine that a rumour spread at court. It wasn't his daughter, it was his ward. Right. And, um, that's much more believable, isn't it? Let's imagine that his wife is an invalid who's bedridden and quite often um, uh, out of her mind on various drugs from the pain and things like that. He's got this very attractive, witty, intelligent, well-educated young ward. And um, he is... Dare I say it, a bit of a cat, but don't tell anybody. Right, right. And um, so when his wife died, uh, by Tudor standards, uh, it's perfectly acceptable to get married um, in in fairly short order, particularly because um, he was getting older, and if he waited much longer, he might not be able to father more children. But she was also a very wealthy heiress with huge... Um, Tracts of land? Absolutely. Enormous counties, <laughs> whole counties of land. Did and, you get my little Monty Python joke in there? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what have the Tudors ever done for us? <laughs> but no, seriously, uh, it made perfect sense. And Henry would have obviously agreed it. Um, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't have um, done anything without having sort of run it past the people that mattered. And... I, I think he would have got a few um, knowing winks in the corridors of power. They would have thought he'd done quite well for himself, actually. Right. And he would have enjoyed that, you know. And um, 
we must remember, I mean, I've, I've studied the, the life of Catherine Willoughby already before I started writing a word. There's nothing anywhere that says she was in any way unhappy with the arrangement. Um, in fact, you know, uh, they seem to have been very happily married. And so uh, this is one of the most important things that I've got to somehow get across in, in the new book is uh, how it was, it was perfectly okay in the standards of the time. And um, I, I can tell you that when my editor was going through uh, the first draft of Brandon, she did ask me to tone down um, the scenes between um, Charles Brandon and uh, Catherine Willoughby, which she thought it might upset some readers. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know, how do you deal with this sort of thing? You know, it's hard enough to deal with the love scene in a book anyway, because my readership ranges from school children who are actually using them to get their heads around the Tudors right through to, um, well, the whole range of ages, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Some people are looking for a a little bit more of of a love scene and some really are not. So it's treading that fine path, you know? Yeah, and then having with modern standards and and mores. No, I know. I didn't want it to be salacious, but, um, you know, I mean, it it, it was just a thing of timing, wasn't it? And, of course, we mustn't forget that if we go back to um, the the, the earlier Tudors again, that Henry VII's mother, uh, Margaret Beaufort, she was that age when she gave birth to Henry, um, yeah, but wasn't it kind of seen at the time as even being a bit um, that she was she was still seen as a bit young, and then later when she was negotiating the marriage for her granddaughter, she asked to have have them wait. I I think what I what I think is the the story on that is that um, Edmund Tudor, Henry's father, um, realized that he would automatically inherit the Beaufort estates if he, if the marriage was consummated. Right, right. And if it wasn't consummated, and don't forget, he was still living in the tail end of the Wars of the Roses and actually died in um, uh, Carmarthen Jail and possibly murdered in Carmarthen Jail and never saw his son. Yeah. But um, he, he didn't waste any time in consummating the marriage and making jolly sure there was evidence of it in the yeah. form of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Poor, poor Margaret Beaufort, though, nearly died with that. <laughs> in, in Pembroke Castle, there's a, a tableau. I, I, have you ever been to, to, to Wales? Have you been to I've, I've been to Cardiff, but I haven't been to Pembroke. Oh, well, if, when you come, you'll have to give me a shout when you come to Pembroke and I'll give you the guided tour. But okay. in the castle, in the, in the tower where they used to think that Henry was born, there's a tableau which shows... Um, it, there's like figures of, of Henry's birth and, and Margaret Beaufort is represented as a middle-aged woman. And <laughs> for that is at the time when that was put together, they thought it might offend people to show a 14-year-old girl with a, obviously a newborn baby in her arms, you know? Right, right. Isn't it funny how you can tell so much about history, not just by what's written, but the time you can tell oh. so much about a time period when it was written Yeah, well, based on, yeah. If, if you if you look at the way the Victorians distort yeah. the historical record, Agnes Strickland and all of those early uh, ones, but, and, and I think the challenge for for modern authors, for for present day writers, is to to do our very best 
to go back to the original documents, to the original locations, the actual locations, and to get a real feel for them and to try and strip away some of those layers that, that have gone on top of it, you know. And and we're still doing it because, like I said, the the Tudors representation of, of Charles Brandon is um, really for entertainment purposes. Right. Whereas I'd like to think that anybody reading my account can take any any of the events that are in my book about Brandon and go back and they will find that they're, they're borne out by the historical record. Right. So, so I want to get back to his story and his perspective um, of something that is well-documented. I don't think you're giving away any spoilers and just the relationship with Mary. And that of course is the way most people remember him uh, through that relationship and, and the marriage. Um, and I, you show in, in both the story of Mary and now in, in Brandon that, that she did seem to have a thing for him even when she was quite young. Um, and I wonder if you could just kind of talk us through the relationship and how it progressed and, and you know, what you found about how, how it worked out. Well, once again, you see, it's intriguing that um, she would have been one of the young princesses in the grandstands watching this handsome knight in, in burnished gold armour um, charging and, and winning against all comers. He, he didn't use the joust only. He would also take on skillet arms, which would be to fight with swords and things like that with with all comers you know and it must have been quite impressive and I can easily imagine how he would have been a figure that would have caught her attention and vice versa because at the end of the day she was an attractive young princess if you you look at any of the pictures of her as a young woman um, I'm talking about by modern standards now she's not unattractive and the, the chroniclers so the ambassador's from France and Spain and describe her as really the one of the fairest princesses they've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they call her the jewel of, of England and things like that. So then you imagine, she's got a very strong sense of duty, of course. So you imagine then that her brother suddenly announces to her uh, the good news and the bad news. The good news is you're going to get married, sister. The bad news is to the ancient elderly king of france who's actually um got all sorts of ailments and diseases as far as i can tell from the record she accepted it as her duty in good faith and decided to make the best of it mm. there's no evidence anywhere of her being um, appalled at the idea i think she might have been a bit unhappy with the um the way that the the wedding was consummated um, in the absence of the king because i find it hard to imagine that However strong a sense of duty um, any any young girl would enjoy that. <laughs> but um, once she got to France, she really got into the idea of being Queen of France and, in fact, insisted on being called, referred to as the Queen of France uh, to her last days. Mm-hmm. And um, she was never happy, never allowed anybody to call her the Duchess of Suffolk, by the way. So that, anyway, if you ever see that as Mary, Duchess of Suffolk, that's actually wrong. Catherine was perfectly happy with it, but not Mary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, when the king died after what, some 90 days, um, who's immediately on the scene consoling her? <laughs> but Charles Brandon, and it's, 
It did, I did wonder for a while. I mean, Henry VIII, he knew that there's something between the two of them. So he sends, of all the people he could choose to send across, he sends Charles Brandon, who at the time was single. And uh, it's, it's almost like um, part of his games of courtly love, isn't it? Yeah. But uh, when when he arrives there, he does know what an enormous risk he's taking. Not really because he thinks that Henry will flip, but he has lots of enemies at court who are very powerful men. And I'm thinking of people like Norfolk and others that mm. they're from the old families and they look on Brandon as an upstart, really, although his father um, gave his life, really, at Bosworth for Henry to become king. And that was a long time ago from their point of view. And they still they still used to refer to him as the stable boy because he was the master of the horse, which was actually uh, a great job being Henry VIII's master of the horse because he loved his horses and it meant you could have privileged access to him a lot of the time. But um, when he secretly married Mary in France, he knew exactly what he was letting himself in for because uh, if he was lucky, he would get away with his life. There were people calling for him to be executed, for heaven's sake, and um, at the very least, they would strip him of all of his lands and um, have every penny he owned, you know? Yeah. So it was high risk. Now, would somebody like Charles Brandon take such an enormous risk uh, if he didn't actually uh, love Mary in the first place? So that's that's my line of reasoning. Mm-hmm. And I think um, they, they did love each other and that uh, it was quite a powerful thing. There was also a, a coincidence of timing, really, that if if the King of France had lived a lot longer, for example, I think Charles Brandon would have married somebody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a bit like the way Owen Tudor was thrown together um, with uh, Catherine of Valois. It was almost an accident of, of, of timing. But once they're together and alone in difficult circumstances, the, there's a bond forms very quickly, isn't it? Sure, sure. And it, it's interesting. I also want to touch on his, uh, you mentioned his enemies at court and you show him struggling with the, trying to very early on being part of the group, but not being still outside and even going uh, to others who are more experienced in trying to form alliances and realizing that he needs to play the political game, but he doesn't really know how. Um, and I just wonder if you could touch a little bit on uh, that, his journey, because when I think about him too, I think of, you know, quite a, a savvy guy who figured out, you know, the court politics and, and found himself not losing his head through all of the tumultuous years, even, you know, coming out in taking some different kinds of stands that maybe were unpopular. And I just wonder if you can talk a little bit about how he became this political operator. I think, yeah, I mean, one of the things in his favor was he was what we would these days call quite streetwise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he also had this relationship with Henry VIII that went back to boyhood. Uh, they they kind of grew up together, although there was a bit of an age difference between them. Uh, they they knew each other so well uh, that nobody would ever know Henry better. No other man would know Henry better uh, than Charles Brandon did. And so that was on the plus side. On the downside, 
he couldn't compete with the noble families with all their wealth and they all had private armies and um, they were very politically astute. Frankly, he used to struggle to even understand what was going on in Parliament. Mm-hmm. Not like now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Parliament's so easy to understand now, but in those days it was very complex. And, of course, you had the powerful church there, and there's a, there's a fascinating on-off relationship between uh, the Brandons and Cardinal Wolsey, uh, who used to lend them money at extortionate rates, and have them over a barrel, really, because uh, he had the power to say, you have to pay back all of your loans tomorrow, or you'll go to the tower. Or he could say, I tell you what, I'll waive those loans. So there's a kind of game that went on of keeping on the right side of Cardinal Wolsey. And um, even Brandon used to struggle a bit with did he like Cardinal Wolsey? Did he trust him? Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes he would think, yes, of course, because, you know, th- th- that's what he'd like to believe. And then something would happen and he would think, hang on a minute, this isn't good, you know. Yeah. And his old-fashioned chivalry would come to the fore and he would then be in turmoil and he would sit down with Mary and see what she thought of it. Mm-hmm. And those those conversations uh, would be fascinating if, when they invent time travel, and I'm allowed to choose wherever I can go, I think I'll go to Westhorpe at the time that they were both there together, um, when they were arguing about whether they should support Henry's marriage to a lady called Anne Boleyn or oppose it publicly. That would have been interesting, one, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. <laughs> of course, my wife and I went to Westhorpe this year expecting to find no trace of it. This is their house in Suffolk, by the way, their manor house. And uh, we were absolutely blown away by it because um, there's the Tudor Bridge and then the house that's on the site mm-hmm. got a similar footprint. But there's like Mary's Chapel and the owner of the house said, would you like to see the, the, the stonework that we salvaged from the moat? The original moat is still there, by the way. Oh, wow. And he took me to a barn. The barn was Tudor as well, by the way. And he had all these, all this um, rubble, really, it was. But it had things like Charles Brandon's um, crest and Tudor um, wow. roses and all stuff like that. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, he took us to his house. And above the fireplace, set into the stonework, this is the owner of the place now, he's got uh, Charles Brandon's crowned lion from the manor house. And you could put your hand on it and think Charles Brandon probably did the same. He probably ran his hand over that carving, you know. Yeah. And, um, it's terracotta, it is, so it would have been pressed into a mould and then um, fired. Mm. But how fast? You know, I felt the years just strip away when I when I did that. And that's what I'm saying is there's, there's no substitute for standing in the grounds of Westhorpe, which have changed very little, by the way. It's in the Suffolk countryside. And you can the, the, the birds that you can hear and the, the wind in the trees and the, the, the moat – um, Charles Brandon would immediately recognise all of that. Yeah. And so you get the kind of all the senses. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Um, I grew up in a, a house which is not old by English standards, but by American standards. It was about 300 years old and it had been a toll house on an original turnpike that went from Philadelphia to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And, you know, I just would be in the living room and think about all the people who would stop there oh. to, to pay the tolls 
who were traveling this road and uh and it was such an interesting thing to think about and you could just you could almost feel them you know there with you all of these these people who had stopped and been in that space where i was sitting and watching tv or whatever and um i'm so lucky because i actually live 20 minutes from pembroke castle and so i can go there anytime and just get a i can stand up on the battlements and look out across the river that's exactly what Owen Tudor would have done what Jasper Tudor would have done what Henry Tudor um, as a boy would have done and um, you know I think one of the most amazing uh, things like that is when we went to Brittany where Henry was in exile and we visited his um, chateau in the forest and nobody else had well, hardly anybody has been there because it was full of cobwebs. My wife said, you're covered in cobwebs. Because <laughs> uh, we just had to like brush the cobwebs aside and I was able to stand in the room that Henry Tudor lived in um, until the age of 28, you know, agonising over whether he dared to, to have the temerity to take on Richard III. Yeah. But it felt like uh, you could almost sense his presence, you know. Yeah. Isn't that so amazing when you're in places like that and you think that you're, you're right there with the, the place that they were at, seeing the views, hearing the sounds. And the, the only thing that separates you is, is time, which as Einstein showed us is all relative anyway. Right. So. Absolutely. You know, for all, you know, they're right there with you because maybe all times are happening at once, you know? Oh yes. And I think that, I think that's why I love uh, what I do is that, you know, it took me a little while to find my sort of niche, if you like. Mm -hmm. And um, I wrote books about my time in Africa and stuff like that. But uh, the Tudors, I've probably got the best collection of books about the Tudors um, in the UK now. (laughs) (laughs) The house is groaning under the weight of Tudor books. And of course, every time anybody spots one, they send it to me and publishers send the new ones to me. Um, But it's, it's actually visiting the locations that really does it for me. I think think any book that you put your hands on. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, I, I want us to, um, wrap the, the conversation up then with you telling me something about Charles Brandon that, uh, we, we don't know, uh, that kind of for people like me who were skeptical of him before we read your book, something that we don't know about him that could perhaps could endear him a little bit more to us. Yes. That's, there's so many things. I mean, right. and I know you don't want to give away any spoilers. Um, well, I can say that he was so, so flattered to be made um, the, the commander of Henry's army invading France uh, that he kind of forgot uh, that he didn't have any skills as a military commander and the whole thing went horribly wrong, and he ended up um, nearly dead in a ditch. You know, the the um, the army was mutinying, and people were slipping away in the night, and uh, he, he caught some uh, fever, which could have been typhoid, or, you know, they were drinking water out of ditches. Right. He became quite delirious. And I think that changed him forever, because... Um, he somehow managed to limp back to Calais. And when you look at uh, the accounts of him before that experience and after it, uh, it, it, he really started to realise his own fallibility. 
as a champion jouster, he'd won whenever he wanted to easily. Sometimes he used to, I think, uh, make sure that Henry won um, at least as often as he did if they were jousting against each other. But um, when he when he was in the real life battle situation, he realised then that he was just an ordinary man like anybody else. And that stayed with him because he was a, a humbler, more sensitive person, I think, after that. Mm. And it's not generally known um, that he he lost all of, he lost that that battle. You know, they were yeah. they were um, not in any way victorious, and he kind of covered up for it by a handful of people remained with him. And as commander, he was able to knight them at Calais. And they formed like a little band of brothers, you know, that they'd all been through this nightmare experience together. And he knighted them and they never forgot that. So he did have a, a, a new circle really out of that. Yeah. But um, the idea of him as a scheming cad and things like that, uh, he, he might have been had a bit of that before, a bit of a character, you know. But after that, um, he settled down. And in fact, towards the end of his life, he would faithfully attend all of the council meetings and really look after Henry VIII's best interests as best as he could. And even the day before he died, he was um, at a council meeting, um, you know, trying to do his best. So, you know, I'd, I'd like to see him not as somebody that exploited his relationship with the king, but that genuinely cared about the future of Henry VIII and his best interests. Yeah. Someone who really just loved the king unconditionally. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. that's a really nice way of putting it. And was prepared, really, to lay down his life for that, if yeah. that's what took. Yeah. All right. Well, I, you know, like I say, I came into the book skeptical, um, just, you know, you just don't hear an awful lot of nice things about him out there. Um, and, uh, I think that you have done a lot to expand my horizons or expand my viewpoints of Charles Brandon. And, uh, and I'm grateful to you for having done so. Um, thank you for writing the book and for sharing your knowledge and for having done the research and, and given us this different perspective of Charles Brandon. Yeah, thank you, Heather. And what I'd like to come back once I've actually finished um, my new book, because yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure I have some interesting things to say about what happened next. Yeah. Because, you know, uh, it's not... It's not an area that's been done to death at all. And um, Catherine has been described as one of the most intriguing Tudor women. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, when you think she was a Protestant who took on uh, Mary the First. Yeah. And, and uh, <laughs> so you're going to probably have a perspective of Mary the First that's a little bit, shall we say, not flattering. I'm going to try and I always do the same. Um, I'm going to try and be as fair as I can. Yeah? Okay. And try and see it from both. So, if you look at how I've described Richard III, for example, yeah. I've always tried to bear in mind uh, that he had he had his own priorities and his own life to live, and um, saw the world from a particular perspective, which which I've tried to I've tried to respect that yeah. rather than just fall into the trap of making him into a villain. You know, Good. he wasn't a villain. 
And um, it's the same with Mary, is that she had a very strongly held religious views and had, had waited and waited her time. And then people like um, Catherine Willoughby or Brandon or whatever you want to call her um, were completely at odds with that. Right. And so that, that's an interesting one to deal with, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I'll be interested to see how you do with that one. <laughs> yeah we'll definitely have you back then for that so thank you so much for taking the time and the book is out now so it makes a great christmas present um and it's on all the usual places i suspect right perfect excellent thank you to tony riches for being on the show i can't wait to have him come back and talk to us more about Catherine willoughby and remember you can go to tutorcon.info to learn more about tutorcon and start planning your trip to pennsylvania to hang out with us for three days and you can also go to tutorfair.com for other great christmas presents so you can tutorify your christmas <laughs> all right i will be back with you in another two weeks And until then, have a wonderful holiday. So I won't be back with you until after Christmas is over. So whatever you're celebrating, even if you're celebrating nothing at all, if you're celebrating solstice, Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever you're doing during this period, I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you're having a a time of peace and love and light. And I will speak to you again very soon. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Blow northern wind, send for baby sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoot a board in Bauerbrick, that soul is Sam Lee's on sea. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.